This is Paul Kirtley Podcast, episode 37. The Paul Kirtley Podcast. Wilderness bushcraft, survival skills and outdoor life. Welcome, welcome to episode 37 of the Paul Kirtley Podcast. My guest today is Dan Hume, bushcraft instructor and author of The Art of Fire. I've known Dan since 2006 when I was working on a tracking course and Dan was present for work experience. The following year, Dan joined the team at Woodlaw, uh, Ray Mears School of Bushcraft, and this was during the time I was there as course director. And so we worked together during a four-year period from when Dan joined in 2007 through to the end of 2010 when I left the company. Now we've kept up from time to time, but it was a real pleasure to catch up with Dan properly on this podcast. He's been busy and Dan has been dedicated to bushcraft since he was a boy. Even from a young age, he was definitely dedicated to mastering bushcraft skills. And that was apparent when he joined the team back over 10 years ago. And Dan predictably went on to lead courses in his own right and ultimately headed the team at Woodlaw. In 2017, his book, The Art of Fire, was published. It documents his mission to travel to remote parts of the world and learn firsthand how traditional fire skills are still being relied upon by indigenous peoples to this day. Dan has since left Woodlaw and now splits his time between the UK and Southeast Asia, um, but he is not slacking by any means, and we get into that in the interview here. In our conversation, Dan shares some interesting anecdotes from his quest for fire, as well as some technical details on the various fire techniques. He brings us right up to date with what he's doing now. And I also ask Dan what his advice would be to young people who want to pursue a career in bushcraft education after leaving school, as he did. After all, Dan is only 30 years old at this point in time, at the point of recording. So without further ado, please enjoy the following conversation with Dan Hume. Well, I'm very happy to have joining me today, Dan Hume. Hi, Dan. How are you today? I yeah, really well. Good to join you. Good, good. Hi, Dan. Whereabouts are you? Because we're not we're not in the same room. We had hoped to be potentially in the same room when we talked earlier in the year and talked about doing a podcast, but we're we're quite separate. You're quite a long way away today, aren't you? Yes, I'm about I'm about eight thousand miles away. I'm in the Philippines at the moment. So I've been in the jungle for a while, uh, spent six weeks in the jungle of New Guinea and um, yeah, just relaxing now at my girlfriend's house uh, in the Philippines. Yeah, mm -hmm. just catching up on some work and uh, yeah, heading back to the jungle in, uh, in a few days time. Wonderful. Wonderful. So, yeah, all yeah. going well. Excellent. And how long are you going out for next time, Dan? Yeah, it'll be a short trip. Mm -hmm. um, it'll be about two weeks, I think. So yeah, just a bit of bit of business, and um, yeah, just mixing work with with pleasure. Really, Fantastic. always try to do that. Yeah, it's good. It's good, isn't it? It's one of the one of the things, one of the benefits of our line of work. I think that we're we're passionate yeah. about the work and 
it's a real pleasure to do it a lot of the time as well as it being interesting engaging work sure yeah cool. i think yeah it's one of my philosophies really i think you know there's work and there's play but i think in our line of work it's just one thing it's just living i think that's how i that's my take on it anyway no, I'd, I'd agree with that i'd agree with that mm. so dan i think for the benefit of the listeners it'd be good to we can come back to the jungle and come back to papua and all the adventures you've had in that part of the world uh, i guess that's a, a thread that goes right through the story but um i think it'd be good to rewind a little bit for for people to give a little bit of your backstory there'll be some people who are listening to this who know you very well and there'll be some people listening to this who maybe don't know you so well so i think it'd be really useful just to have a little bit of a biographical account of how you came to to be where you are today and then we can we can dive off from that i think yeah sure sure well um i grew up in suffolk i was born in in bury st edmunds in suffolk um in 1989 and uh i grew up in the in the countryside so i had the countryside right on my doorstep and ever since i can remember really i mean my earliest memories of being in interested in the outdoors was probably from when i was seven or eight and um you know i do i do things in the garden i'd experiment with with different things and i think i think what kicked it off really was john john lofty wiseman's survival handbook and i got that for christmas once and uh and i looked through that and that that really kicked it off uh and so i would i'd experiment with some of the things i read in the book uh and then go off into the countryside around around my home which is only a, a short walk away and i just practice everything i'd work work my way through that book just practicing everything i could um, and then when I was about, I guess I was about 10 or 11 for, for Christmas again, I got Ray Mears bushcraft book and, and I did the same thing. I just started, I couldn't get enough of, of this stuff. Um, so I, I, I worked my way through, through that book and, um, and just tried everything I could. And it, it wasn't really an effort. It wasn't, I didn't really have to give much thought to it. It was just something I ended up doing, and and that's kind of a a theme that's repeated itself throughout my life. I guess I've I've never I've never really had to think hard about what to do. I've just followed my heart and just done what I what I enjoy, and and so that's that's how life started really. And my parents were very supportive, and and so from there, I guess when I was when I was thirteen or fourteen. Um, because I'd read Ray Mayer's book, I then got in touch with his company and, and I was interested in some of the courses they were running. So I wrote a letter and, uh, you know, I'd send photos in and things, uh, about some of the things I'd done in the countryside. And, and I got, I got several letters back, signed letters from Ray and, um, a lot of encouragement from there, which was great. And when I was, I think I was about 16, I wrote to Woodlaw and I asked if I could do some work experience, whether I could come along and, and attend, uh, attend some, uh, some courses uh, and, and help out, uh, which, they, which they were kind enough to offer. Um, but if we just retract a little bit, slightly before then, um, I'd actually done a couple of courses with Woodlaw. So 
I'd done the fundamental course and the one of their tracking courses. Um, so I already had I, I knew some of the team and and that interest was was kind of spurred on a little bit. And then, like I say, I applied to do some work experience, and and that was great. I only did I think it was ten days. I did mm. a couple of courses, an introduction and a, and a tracking course. <clears throat> I think and, um, I think that's the great. that's the time I we may have met before that Dan but I think that's the first time I remember meeting you because I was working those courses if I remember yeah. rightly yeah 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 that's right it was about two thousand and six I yeah. think yeah yeah sure um, and and that was a great time great time got to know the team um, and you know learned a few more skills and and had great fun that's that's the the main point I had great fun and I wanted more um, and I came away with you know having in mind that, that that's something I wanted to do I would had that experience uh, of, of helping out on some of the courses and I wanted to pursue it and just as I was thinking that a letter dropped on my doorstep uh, inviting me to join the team the year after so this is 2007 mm-hmm. um, so that was a great moment, just seeing that envelope on the floor and uh, and opening up the letter and, and hearing that was was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and so in the spring of 2007, I attended my first my first courses, uh, started off assisting and had a great time, worked on lots of different courses. In those days, there was a lot of work. And we, we, I mean, you, you remember that, of course. I remember. We, <laughs> I mean, it's a great, we it was a great proving ground. And, uh, yeah, yeah. No, it's a real, real pleasure to, to work alongside you. And um, yeah, great memories from those days. And, and just built up from there, really. Just, you know, there, there are no shortcuts in, in this industry. You know, it's, I, I, I always felt throughout my time there, it was, and before that, it was important to, put the time in to to really honing the skills and learning about the natural world and not just from a bushcraft point of view but from lots of different avenues so i would talk to people in my my home county suffolk some of the old boys around there about the birds and you get to know the bird calls you get to i you you get to know the trees and the plants around you you get to detect the little signs and the little nuances of, of nature and and it's something that takes time um so i think i that that i'm i i was blessed with that and you know very very privileged to to have had access to that um and so it stood me a good good stead when i got to woodlaw and of course once i was there I, you know I, I i called upon that knowledge and um and it it, it stood me in good stead uh and and then i, I gradually learned, uh, climbed the ladder Mm-hmm. from there so mm-hmm. after a few years i was promoted to senior assistant wasn't i and then mm-hmm. um and then i i started leading courses i think that was 2009 mm-hmm. um started leading the fundamentals and and some of the other courses and uh and it, it just went from there and and uh eventually i became the the head of operations there mm-hmm. And so I was in charge of the the team of instructors and developing new experiences for customers, and um, it ju- it just went yeah, it just went with it mm-hmm. and just just followed my heart really. Mm, fantastic, fantastic. I mean, one of the things I remember from. <clears throat> 
when I first met you was your your enthusiasm for um, everything that we were doing and, and everything you know you wanted to learn about and you asked good questions and then the other th- the, the other memory that I have particularly after you joined the team and became established as, as an assistant was just how much time you would spend on your own skills you know rather than you know in between yeah. you know, doing your other duties rather than say you know sitting back and having a cup of coffee or something you would go off and um, make a trap out of something or have another go at, right. have another go at uh, the, the 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 seemingly endless quest to get uh, the fire plow to work in the wet Sussex woods that seemed to go on from about <laughs> 2008 yeah. to 2010 um, and sometimes sometimes to the detriment of my other duties but, um, <laughs> but, but for sure again it, it just harks back to that you know there's no cutting corners and and also just just following what you enjoy. You know, I, I never really, I didn't feel like it was it was effort. There were physical efforts, but mentally there was no there was no effort really. It, it was just doing something that that I enjoyed and pursuing something, trying to get better every day. You yes, know? yeah, yeah. And there's a, I think I think we all have this natural curiosity that keeps driving us to 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 want to know more and want to learn more and that was that was very evident um in you right from the start so um mm. good to see that uh following through all the way um because a lot of people kind of came and went but you just stuck with it and stuck with developing skills which is fantastic and the other thing i remember about you talked about the old boys the other thing i remember about you particularly is that you were always very interested in the ability to put food on the table as it were that skill set that was something that you seem very you know we will talk a lot about fire i'm sure in in this conversation but one of the other memories i have of you was your your keenness to learn how to 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 trap and to shoot and all of those things that allow you to put food on the table yeah, sure. I mean, again, that was something that was was on my doorstep as well. There were mm-hmm. there were lots of country people around where I lived who, you know, just just through through chance, really. You know how these things happen. You 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 meet people. If you put yourself out there, you 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 end up meeting people that you click with and that you can learn from. Uh, and that's exactly what happened. You know, your your enthusiasm shows, and and um, people respond to that. I think. But yeah, I mean, my although I've I've done a, a book on fire my you know the core of my passion is 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 nature like yourself mm-hmm. it's it uh, and then you can branch out from from things from there but certainly the the hunting and the trapping and things and the fire making they were particularly exciting to me especially when i was younger and yeah good times mm, they were they were lots of lots of uh, lots of fun with it did you sorry did, did you ever get because I remember, as I remember, one particular occasion, you know, they had that sort of muddy turning circle near one of our camps where the Land Rovers used to yeah, turn yeah, around. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, there was just that phase of, you know, trying to get the 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 fire plow to work, and we had sort of sweet chestnut logs, and we, we, we um, you know, we had plows mm-hmm. made of willow and all sorts of things. And I'm trying to remember if we ever got it to, or you ever got it to work at that point. And we all had lots of goes on it and sort of take it in turns. Yeah. But, yeah, we, it's something that I recall when I was writing my book. When I came to that chapter, exactly that that image you you've recalled came up in my mind, um, and uh, yeah, we we did. We we got it going eventually. Um, it took so many tries. Yeah, we started on sweet chestnut, didn't we? And then I think we tried. 
we tried sycamore and that was the the first wood that that worked mm. but boy yeah it took a long time yeah. a lot of yeah. perseverance but the main problem with that was i wasn't carving the the tip of the plow mm. correctly I, I wasn't quite getting that right because there were, there were no real drawings on that there's no real information on it back then that I, that I could find so yeah. yeah i think that was the the downfall but then you know we we persevered and, and we did it mm. for mm. sure so I mean, in in the in the environments that that's used, it's it's hibiscus that gets used a lot, isn't it? I mean, is is part of it just the just the type of wood that's available in the UK that makes it difficult to do? Yeah, I I think that's very true. Um, most people use coastal hibiscus, like you say. Mm. There are other woods that people use uh, that I've seen. Um, people even use bamboo if other wood is really wet people will go to bamboo um i mean we're, we're talking i mean my knowledge is you know is is relatively limited on the range of these these specifics but um in my experience yeah in, in kind of eastern papua new guinea on the islands off the coast there people if coastal hibiscus or other woods are, are wet because there's been prolonged rainfall then of course they can carve them down and get to dry wood within them but they will often uh, use bamboo. They just scrape the lacquer off the outside of the bamboo and then use bamboo, um, and that works reasonably well. And th there are lots of, as you know, lots of different species of bamboo. So, um, you know, I, I can't comment on on which species, but they'll certainly they'll certainly use a species that grows locally to them. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think going back to your your question about british woods i think that's that's the main problem i mean it is it's not particularly skillful it's the the technique generally isn't particularly skillful um th there is some of course there is some skill involved in it but it's it's not particularly difficult if you have the right wood and once you practiced a few times it's it's fine but the the limiting factor in britain is is the wood there are several species of wood that work really well um but if you try other species, it just it, it's just so difficult and, you know, you can't get it to work. Mm -hmm. So what have you found? You mentioned sycamore working. What have you found that works well in in the northern temperate yes, sort I of European UK? Yeah, sycamore was the first. Um, alder as well. It, I'm going back to that earlier, um, that memory you, you recalled earlier. So <laughs> we, we use sycamore alder. Um, poplar and we tried with goat willow or pussy willow and that that didn't work um so but the others did since then um i found that probably the the two best i would put them equally is white willow mm -hmm. so salix alba and um and lime lime as mm. well lime is brilliant i mean you can literally with both those woods you can walk into a woodland um and and find a branch that's hung up snap it off uh, or pick it up and and make fire you can literally make fire in in just a couple of minutes uh there's not much preparation to the set as you know and it's it's really quick uh, whether it's that viable in britain well that's that's up for debate there are other techniques in a survival situation of course that you you go to aren't there but um if people want to experiment with that in in in, Brit in britain mm -hmm. that's they're the two that i would recommend 
Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it, and they're, they're also two that work nicely for Bodril, aren't they? I mean, one of the things I always noticed with white willows, it seemed to be set apart from some of the other willows in, in terms of how well it worked for for Bodril. Mm. And, of course, uh, Tilia uh, species in general work very well for, for Bodril as well. They're sort of silky yeah. smooth, aren't they? They just, they just work really nicely. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, there's definitely a, a difference between if you compare white willow to the other willows, there's a there's a quality to it that yeah. seems to lend itself to to this this technique and, and friction fire fire making in general. Indeed, indeed. Now I, I remember Dan. I can't remember if it was before you first came to Woodlaw or whether it was after the first time you came to Woodlaw. But I remember you doing a a trip up to Cape York when you were in your teens. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, where, where was that in the timeline? Remind me. Yeah, that was that was two thousand and six. Mm-hmm. So that was I, I went to I went to Cape York, did that trip. For, that was three weeks, and then almost straight up. Well, I think it was six months after that. I went to Africa with Woodlaw. Mm-hmm. I went up um, down to Namibia. We did a trip there. Uh, and then it was that was the year I did my work experience. So mm. it was kind of all in one. Mm. Um, so I, I went to Australia, did some work experience. Then in 2017, the year after, I went to Namibia. And then it was in the spring of 20, um, 2007 that that I began working mm. work at Woodall. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah, the, the the trip to Cape York was with the cadets, wasn't it? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was in the cadets for for a few years. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I was like thirteen till I was eighteen, and uh, and we did loads of things. That was my other passion was was flying. Mm. Uh, I did a lot of flying with the cadets, and um, certainly younger. When I was a lot younger, I wanted to be a pilot, and that was kind of always in the back of my mind as something that I'd like to do. And then when I was, you know, mid-teens, it, the, the bushcraft and the natural world kind of came in and, and it overtook that that desire. But we, the Eckex was great. And we, we had this amazing opportunity to do an expedition in Queensland. So we went from Cairns um, and we drove, uh, it's about a thousand kilometres up to Cape York, which is the northernmost point in Australia. And then, and then all the way back. And along the way, we would we would stop with um, we stopped with some Aboriginal people, um, and we saw some of the some of the amazing sites there. And incredibly diverse region. Um, you got jungle there, and and kind of arid um, savannas, and, and more deserty regions. And um, and then ama- amazing, we got to the tip, and and of course it's only 80, 80 miles or so across the uh, the Torres Straits there to to New Guinea. Then you're in, in New Guinea. Mm-hmm. so yeah incredible trip mm. so I, I i can kind of see all of these various strands kind of coming together quite early on that's what i'm getting at because you've since been back to that part of the world certainly on the new guinea side multiple times how did that first come about was it was it a desire to explore the geography having been to that part of the world before or was it more you just wanted to go and get first hand get to the source with respect to some of the the fire skills or was it a combination of all of those things i think the the new guinea trip the first time i went to new guinea was was in 2015 and um it started i i'd wanted to go there for years and i'd been inspired by 
some of the David Attenborough documentaries and various others. Um, it was always in my mind a land that that called to me, and and so I wanted to go. And the the only limiting thing was money because it's quite expensive um, to to get there. Certain areas of it, mm. um, and and my parents were slightly hesitant. I was I was a lot younger then, you know, sixteen, seventeen, and my parents were a little bit hesitant uh, of me going there, understandably. Um, but yeah, I, I, a few years older, and that desire was still there. And I really wanted to get to the jungle in the south of. Uh, we're talking about the western half of New Guinea, so the Indonesian half, and I wanted to go into the jungle in the south there, uh, the lowland jungles. Um, but that was again very very expensive to get there, and um, and I, I I simply just couldn't afford it mm. at that time. So I thought, well, I have to compromise, and to go to the highlands in the centre of the island was a lot was a lot easier, a lot cheaper. Um, so I thought that'd be a good starting block to to work from. I could get there, I could I could make make a trip there, have an adventure, meet some people, and you know just just find my feet a bit uh and with the intention of going back and um and that's exactly what i did so that that first trip uh in 2015 i i kind of had in the back of my mind about collect this is the the funny thing with with the the book on fire i this this desire didn't really this desire to kind of collect the information about fire making didn't start when i had the idea for a book obviously i was interested in all those skills but for many years before but the desire to collect and gather the knowledge that did remain that started long before the the, the idea for the book so on that particular trip i was i was photographing in this case the fire thong a soaring technique of making fire uh for for kind of the the, the reason of, of gathering the, the information, just interviewing people. The, the book wasn't really in my mind at all. But I knew somehow, I knew that this knowledge had to be recorded and, and photographed. And so I just, I kind of set about doing it. So in a way, that trip showed me that, well, actually, you, you know, you can you can just get on a plane and and not know any of the language or any of the culture you could you can turn up somewhere and and you can make it work and and i think it helps if of course if you have a if you have a goal to your trip and in that case i i did you know um mm -hmm. so yeah it worked out well that trip and then that spurred on uh, several other trips i've been going back there yeah several times each year since then mm. it's a place i just can't get enough of it really mm -hmm. it's uh it's so vast. That's the thing. It's it's huge, and you've got more than a thousand languages spread over the the entire island, uh, and it's real a real melting pot of human culture. Mm -hmm. So fascinating. Yeah. So so is, is it a combination of the landscape and the people that that attract you? What 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 is it that just just out of interest? Yeah. Or is yeah. It that specifically, or I think, just general I think it is. I mean, yeah. I, th I think it's a combination of things because you've got the island as a whole. It's the, the largest tropical island in the world, and it's the second largest island in the world after Greenland. Um, and so the, 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 the sheer size of it, uh, you know, causes some mystery and, and, uh, and it, it uh, promotes opportunity just from the sheer size. But... Uh, once you get in there, the the topography. I mean, you you basically got the 
most of the island is covered in primary rainforest. Only a small amount of it has been cut down. And um, But running along the, the length of the island, you have um, huge mountains. I mean, this is pretty much bang on the equator, the whole island. Uh, it's just just south of the equator. It's, it just straddles it. And but along the centre of the island, you've got snow-capped mountains hmm. um, that are, I think they're up to 6,000 metres or something. They're, they're huge. And so you've got, they call it equatorial ice. They've got, you've got glaciers up there. And then, you know, you descend a few kilometres and you're into tropical rainforests where it's 30 plus degrees. Hmm. Um, so that caused... Um, you know, thousands of years ago, it caused um, incredible difficulties with tribe, tribes moving around. Uh, so people were very isolated because of the difficulty of traversing the land. And so you had, you know, very, very different, unique languages forming. You, you, you're in one valley, even today, and you, the people are speaking one language. You cross over the mountainside to another valley, and, and it's a different language. Um, and so, and, and the Highland people have a very different culture to the lowland jungle people. And then you've got the islands around, which I've only seen a small portion of, of the islands, but um, just so much, it's, it's almost like, you know, it's the difference between, you know, going to, you know, a country in Europe and a country in, in, in Asia, you know, in terms of the, the diversity, it really is that, that profound. Hmm. So that was the draw for me. And also because because of its isolation, the skills that I'm interested in are still real they're still very much alive. They're still it's still a real frontier place. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's incredible to explore. Even though there are some things that have encroached, some modern aspects that have encroached. Some people have mobile phones, some people have watches, some people um wear T shirts and shorts, you know. Mm-hmm. But the knowledge and the mindset and the psyche of the people is pretty much un- unchanged. So for me, that was that's that's the draw. Mm. Mm. And are they are they surprised that you're interested in their skills, or is it just is it is it is it a surprise either because <clears throat> that's not that common um, for people to come in from the outside being interested in those skills, or is it a surprise because they just see them as sort of day-to-day things that they take for granted how do they how do they react to your interest in the fire skills and their skills in general i mean um people some areas in in papua new guinea are are more frequently visited than others but still as a whole it's not very visited not many people make it there so they're, they're some of the friendliest people i've ever met and although in the media it's sometimes portrayed as, as dangerous and don't, don't go there and so on, the the opposite couldn't be couldn't be true really. Um, but in terms of how the, the people's reaction, it, it it definitely varies depending on where you go. People are overwhelmingly pleased that you've come to visit them. Uh, they're very hospitable. They look after you. Um, and they're they're pleased that you're interested in in their culture. There's a real in Papua New Guinea generally, and this stems in my experience from the government as well, the local governments especially. They're they're very proud of their culture, mm. and they're very they're really trying to to hold on to it. 
um, in spite of modern encroachment. So people are, people are pleased that you're interested. And then if you go to remoter areas uh, where people are less familiar with that interaction, um, the people are uh, are more surprised um, for sure. But then that soon fades away. People are surprised, but then they they they're pleased again. They're pleased that you you come and they're interested in in my world, you know. And you can have some really great great chats with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think people are pleased. People are pleased with it. So, but it's important that. As always, uh, when you go to these areas, you, you know it's it's um, it's ethical and and you do it in the right way. You don't cause a fuss, and that's very much how I try to do things. I just try to slip into the stream without causing too much turbulence. <laughs> and um, you know, I don't get my camera out immediately. I just you know see if I'm welcome first, and just gradually build relationships. And 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 then when the time's right, then you can start asking about things and. And and it's a give and take relationship, you know. Yes, but it's it's a good one. It's a good place. Mm, no, it sounds fascinating. It's somewhere that's always been on my on my list, but I have not made it there yet. I've not made it there yet. So, yeah, one I'll of one these day. one of these day. years. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll, I'll I'll come with you one of these years if. Uh, yeah, for sure. We can make that work. welcome. That, that would be fun. That would be fun. Um. So, at what point did you? your sort of quest for fire and fire skills at what point did that sort of polarize into the thought of doing a book i think well it was an opportunity that that came up um that sparked that sparked the idea in my head i i so i'd done this trip as i said to to just explore new guinea and kind of scratch that that itch if you like um and in the process gathering some information about fire and then, um, and then I, I met at an event I was running. I met uh, an author, a published author, and we got chatting. And I thought I'd take the opportunity to just ask about the process of writing books. And I had this this fire idea in my mind. Um, so I I asked him about it. You know about the the how how you do it. How how do you go about writing books? Because to me, you know. I, I had no idea. Like, do you do you just get Microsoft Word up? Do you, you know, do you have to have some special equipment? I, I didn't. I really didn't know. I was a bit naive in that respect. And, well, the publishing uh, world, the publishing it, world is quite opaque in a lot of ways, isn't it? You know, yeah, you, there's sort of, sure. you know, it, it's not. It, it it doesn't outwardly seem straightforward. Quite, quite. Um, but uh, yes, this chap, this chap. And I got talking, and I had some questions for him. How, how do you write a book? And he he simply said, I "Remember, he just said, just sit down and type. Just get your computer out or your notebook or whatever it is, and just write it. That's the most important thing. Just write it down, and then you can deal with all of this other stuff afterwards." Um, and and that inspired me. And then at the end of this, uh, we 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 were together for a few few days, and just before we parted, um, he sent me a a little torn off piece of envelope um, with his agent's email address on it and um, and said, look, just, you know, if you've got an idea, just get in, get in touch, you know, and it's, just have a coffee, you know, talk about it over a coffee with, with my agent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did. Uh, I, I emailed uh, his agent. Um, she said, I just sounded her out on the, on the idea. She sounded very interested. 
and we met we met in london uh had a coffee and and they loved the idea and several months went past we we kind of were in conversation about how to go about structuring the book because in my mind i wanted to do a very factual book um very kind of niche to record all of the history or as much as i could i wanted to go through every technique i could and record as much as i could about it the history where it's used um how it was used how people at home could could use it um all of those things um but then it, it became apparent that we'd have to we'd have to just adapt it slightly we could still include those things but we just have to you know, just trim it down a little bit in some areas and maybe include another dimension to it to make it viable, to make it, you know, appealing to, to the, the masses, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that's that's what we did. So we had a, a few months of conversation and and then we, we, we struck on the idea. We struck on the idea to take every chapter and kick it each chapter off with an anecdote, a personal anecdote of mine from my own travels, my own experiences. And then in the second half, to describe the, the history and the, the background of the technique, where it was used, and and how to do it, um, and and so it, it was a bit of a bit of a compromise, and and I really liked the idea, um, and so it went from there. Yeah, we we um, we put a, a proposal together, we wrote a proposal, sent it out to um, publishers, uh, and and then. We and then we heard back. I think it was very, very quickly, a, a day or two. We heard back and and we had a deal, <laughs> uh, and and we were away. So I I um I had a meeting with Penguin with the with the publisher. And I went for a meeting there. Went for several meetings and we discussed discussed the plan. And I I started writing and then of course it dawned on me that to do the job properly, I you know I could I could write it just in the UK. I could just take some pictures here and and you know gather some information from here and call upon my past experiences but I thought well you know to really put the cherry on the top wouldn't it be great to go out to the areas where these techniques come from to to pick some of them and and to go out there and try and see if they still exist uh I knew some of them did as 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 you of course did uh, and do but um some were still in my mind. I wasn't quite sure, so I thought, well, you know, let's let's get on a plane and and see if they do. Mm. Uh, so that's what I did. I started. I stopped. I just worked my way through. I made a list on the back of an envelope of the the chapters that I'd like to write about, all of the the techniques I could think of, and then I started looking at flights mm. and and thinking whether I could, you know, I could maybe kill two birds with one stone or. Um, what worked with with the rest of my schedule, mm-hmm. but yeah, basically started booking travel. So what what, what were what places were on that envelope, Dan? So I, I think I started with um, I knew with, with the Beaujol. I knew I looked at that and I thought I f- I'm pretty sure that's that's died out. But I'm I'm open to I'm open to to be proved differently in terms of people um, so relying kind of, on it. Do you mean? In terms, yeah, that's right. Yeah. In terms of native people relying upon it, so I looked at the others, and um, I think the first place I went was to Malaysia. I I looked at the fire piston that I'd written down, and I thought, okay, well, and I started doing some research, and right? I started reading as much as I could, uh, uh, both in books. I went to the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford, which, um, if listeners haven't been, it's 
fantastic. Yeah, it is. Um, and I, I did as much research as I could, and I found some scant information on uh, the existence of this chap that still made fire pistons the traditional way. And he lived in Malaysia. He lived in Peninsula, Malaysia. Uh, so I thought, well, there was no web, there's no email, no phone number. It was just um, a little bit of information on him and the rough area, the state that he lived in, <laughs> Pahang State, and and roughly where where he was. So I thought, well, there are two options. I you know I can I can just not go and write about it, um, or I can just you know take a bit of a risk and, and go out there and see what I find, which, which is what I did. And so I booked a flight to Kuala Lumpur and got to Kuala Lumpur, uh, spent a few days there. And then I just made my way to where, uh, this description, uh, mentioned. And I started asking around, I got to a hotel and I started asking there. No one really knew it. They were all blank faces. I got up. I tried best in, in, in the Malay I'd learned on previous trips to explain um, blank faces. Uh, I showed pictures on my, on my phone, uh, nothing. <laughs> um, but anyway, I, I managed to persuade a taxi driver to take me out to the specific area that had been mentioned. And we went out. I asked I asked the hotel for a, a taxi driver that could speak English, but uh, when he arrived in the morning, he couldn't. He, he could say hello and so on. So we were kind of, you know, just conversing in Malay a little bit. And uh, anyway, I thought he sounded like, he seemed like a really nice guy. So we, we got in the car and we went. Um, and we spent the whole day looking. And we, we asked people on mopeds. We got right out. The secondary forest kind of became, uh, the palm oil became secondary forest. The secondary forest became more primary forest we got deeper and deeper in and we were asking people and people were pointing us in the direction and we we found um we just kept kept going with it just asking people and not really know where we go where, where we were going and um we it started to get dark so and we hadn't we hadn't found this place so we we, we were forced to head back although i'd came i'd come prepared to spend the night out if need be we we, we thought we'd head back and um, and we'd give it another shot the next day. We, we gathered, you know, enough information to give us the confidence to try again. And we went out the second day and and we found it. We found we found the guy. And, um, I, you know, I elaborate on the story a little bit more in the book. But we, we found uh, Mr. Jamry, his name was. And uh, I was invited into his house very kindly. Um, he got out some fire pistons that he makes them all by hand. Mm-hmm. and uh it's it's amazing and he's his father and grandfather were fire piston makers um he's perhaps the the last fire piston maker in the world i don't i don't know maybe there are others um and it it was great so we we got that we i photographed him and i learned about how it was made traditionally and and how to use it the tinder that was used with it traditionally uh and it's it's incredible and then so from that, it, that was a similar a similar scenario that repeated itself throughout the making of it. I went on to, for instance, the fire plow. Uh, I looked at that and I thought, well, it's it's a Pacific technique, really. It's used mm-hmm. in the Pacific Ocean. It's used in New Zealand, um, in some places in Australia. Uh, it's out that way in the far southeast. Um, and so then I stumbled across 
some accounts from the uh, well an account from uh, i think it was the 1920s made by um walter hoff he was he was born in 1859 and died in the 30s and um he 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 was a, an american ethnologist and he wrote quite extensively on the contents of the u.s national museum in the 1890s and he uh, he made some really good accounts um of, he just made some amazing drawings of what was in the museum and how some of these things worked but it was very scientific uh but but some very accurate descriptions um so uh and he he described the the people of the bismarck archipelago although he hadn't been there he in the 1890s had heard accounts of the firepower the Fireplow's Western Range being used in the Bismarck Archipelago, just off the coast of New Guinea. <coughs> so I looked into this tribe, this area, and um, and coincidentally, I found that they also employed these traditional fire dances, which are incredibly visual. They dance in the fire and they dress up in uh, bark cloth uh, costumes, and they dance in the fire and. It's very, very spectacular. So I thought, well, what a great, what a great chapter to the book to tell the story of the fire dance and then go on to explain the the fire plow. Mm-hmm. And when I got there, of course, I, I found people people using the plow. So that that account was confirmed. And in some areas, I, I mentioned it in in the book. I think in se- several articles I've written that uh, in some areas, particularly in in some areas of New Britain, the skill wasn't being relied upon every day. Although people still remembered it, it tended to be the older people. Light as a match had crept into some areas in that place. Uh, but when I when I went deeper in in that area, and when I went across the the ocean to New Brit uh, New Ireland, which is only forty miles across the sea, people were using it every day. Hmm. Um, it was an everyday thing, even the youngsters. Um, so. It, it was confirmed that I, I think is the western extremity of that that technique because in the rest of new guinea people depend upon more on the f- soaring techniques the fire thong with rattan mm-hmm. so that that was great and and i they treated me to one of their fire dances so i i got some um some photos of that interviewed them and fantastic fantastic trip and i'm, mm-hmm. I'm really pleased with that that chapter and then um and then the the fire saw that was another another technique of course the bamboo fire saw or the fire saw in generally there are lots lots of different ways of doing it but the bamboo fire saw is most common i would say especially in the philippines mm-hmm. uh, and my girlfriend is is uh, uh filipina so uh, so it was great i had a translator <laughs> and uh someone to to come on the trip with me and uh and we just yeah we explored some of the remoter areas of of the Philippines looking for that, which we found um, pretty close to Manila as well. We One of the places was just across the sea on one of the islands. And, uh, and one of the places was actually from her province uh, in the, in the North of Luzon. Uh, people are still using that technique. Hmm. You know, people, people still know it. Uh, not everyone, but some, some people, you know, so it, it was great. It wasn't really that difficult to, although I had some interesting adventures, it, it wasn't that hard to, to find these things. They're still, they're still quite alive. Yeah. Mm, it's fascinating. Fascinating. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Fantastic. So writing then 
were you writing as you went or would, did you then kind of come back and collate everything together for the for the book yeah i tended to make notes mm. while i was away and i did a little bit of writing because you know a lot of these trips involved long-haul flights so i took advantage of that and did some writing on there but while i was actually in country it tended to be notes and i was concentrating on taking photos and i wanted to concentrate on developing relationships with the people mm-hmm. uh, so i could delve deeper into it and ask other questions and things and so it was it was note taking really and then on the flights and then back home i was do, doing the writing um and i had a, a writer help me um with, with some of the writing because it's my first book and uh and i'm i'm not really a, a before i did this i wasn't really a writer although i enjoyed writing um i wasn't really a writer so um i had a a writer with some of the like the first portion of the chapters i had a um, a, a writer georgina rogers a uh, lovely lady and she she helped me um so i'd i'd write the i'd write the 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 uh, information and and everything uh, on on the story and then she would help me just polish it up mm. and um, and it was it was great relationship but then all of the um most of the story and, and most of the uh, all well all of the practical stuff was was my own writing but it was just a, a polish up really yeah but i think i think great, it's useful to have book. editors yeah. and and yeah. and professional you know someone who's a professional writer can always add some some shine and often uh, compress your writing into something that's a bit more compact and punchy than you can do on your own. I think that's always the case. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. No, it was great, and I learned I learned a lot from from her. And uh, no, it was great, great, great relationship. And um, no, I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty pleased with how it's come out. I think. I mean, my my main thoughts. I don't know if you're going to come on to that, but my my main thoughts behind wanting to do it were that uh, I, I wanted to record things really accurately and as thoroughly as I could, but not not to elaborate too much on them, not to go on and on and on about problems that may be encountered or teaching technique um, and, and kind of helping with problems. I, I wanted, to, because I think there's a, there's a lot to gain in, you can give people what they need, you can give people the tools to learn, can't you? But... I wanted, I wanted not to, ela- not elaborate too much on the ins and outs of the technique. I wanted to give just enough so people could go off, and with the information written down, they could achieve it. But it would require some perseverance and and some some hard work. I didn't want to answer every question, so the some of the chapters might seem a little bit short because of that, and a, a little bit, you know, blasé if you like. But I I think what I what I've done is. I hope is 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 in is enough, and it just gives a little bit of background and history. And I want I wanted to record that because I felt that some of these things are disappearing fast. Yeah, I think yeah, and, I think the the balance is very good, Dan. I think you know I've 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 got a copy of your book and I've I've read through it, and I think that you have struck a very good balance with um, introducing the technique and making it clear what the technique consists of without as you say kind of going into every nuance of troubleshooting and i think yes you can sometimes yeah. swamp the core information if you try and do that all in one all in one shot and and, and the other thing that i would note you know i've i've read about 
you know, these techniques as you had, you know, and there's the sort of accounts of things in the Smithsonian Insti Institute and there's photographs of fire pistons in the British Museum and there's all these kind of disparate things and they're all couched very much in, you know, this is something we found in the 19th century and nobody knows whether it exists anymore and and I think you've brought, mm. you brought that kind of anthropological side kind of right up to date in terms of, well, this is what exists and what's being used here and now. And and that's, yeah. I think in one of the things I took away from the book was a, a sense of how alive some of these techniques still are. And I, I took, you know, some, some degree of, of heart from that. You know, we're kind of constantly being told that, all of these indigenous skills are, are dead and or dying out and you know everything's been westernized and i i actually took some heart that, that out there there's still people using these things yes yeah absolutely me, me too very much so because when i was on these embarking on these these trips i, I just didn't know you know i i didn't know what was what was still out there was it was it a risk was it well it, it was a risk but was it you know was it um I don't know. I, you know, you don't know. You're setting out into the unknown. So, and it was it was really heartening to see these these things still alive, and in many cases with with younger people as well. Um, and it it was great, you know. And hopefully, it's you know, I've I've recorded it um, for from an anthropological point of view, as you say, um, and also from a an educational point of view as well. Mm -hmm. And I've tried, well, I, I have, I've made sure that everything I've written there, some people may disagree with technique or, or something, maybe, but in terms of the, the accuracy of things, I've, I've, I've strived in everything to not, I, I haven't written anything that I haven't personally, personally tried or, uh, or, or I, I, I personally don't know it, it, it works, mm. you know, so I, I was really really strict on that in my mind that I didn't want to just repeat something parrot fashion that I'd read yes. or I'd, I wanted to, if I read something, I wanted to try it and, and I wanted to, I wanted to see it if possible mm -hmm. myself, you know, so everything people can, can have faith in what it says in there will, will work. But some of it, that's not to say it's, it's easy of course to learn, but once you've gone through the perseverance of learning it, then it becomes easy and it works mm, mm. one one of the there are a couple of things that i i found especially interesting I, I guess like like you things that maybe you weren't expecting to find um and, and one thing that jumps out at me was the the bamboo striker light do you want to maybe spend a, a few moments explaining how that came about yeah i mean that was that was a complete surprise to me i mean i so um, yeah, so for the, the benefit of the, some of the listeners that might not know it, the, the bamboo strike light is a technique uh, used in, uh, kind of, it's spread around Southeast Asia, and that's obviously a large, large area. Um, but the, the technique involves <laughs> using a specific species of bamboo and a piece of stone, a shard of stone, uh, or... Uh, more recently, a shard of broken porcelain or china, and the two are, are struck together. The two are struck together, and they create sparks. So there's no friction involved. It's different to the bamboo fire saw. 
sparks are produced from this this a percussion method and the sparks are caught on some tinder so in in britain we might you know it's similar to char cloth in uh, in those regions they use the skirt from a palm tree specific type of palm tree to catch the spark and it, it's very quick uh, there's a real knack to it but um incredible i was on a on a boat um in in that region i was i was in indonesia and i was reading um alfred russell wallace's uh, malay archipelago which is one of the one of the best uh travel records travel journals and that on natural history um from the 19th century he traveled all around that area for several years in the 1850s and 60s and i came across a, a short passage he was talking about an area called uh, well it was a, a city called tanate which is on the island of halmahera in indonesia and he was he was talking about observing this technique this bamboo strike light and and i read it several times because i i couldn't i'd never heard of it and i i couldn't quite grasp you know is there a is there a mistake here or in the observation perhaps or but i read it several times and then it, it dawned on me that well no this this really could be this really could be a, a technique and alfred russell wallace has written about it so you know um you, you know you can't get much more reliable than that so i it, it stuck in my mind and, and then later on in in writing the book i was back in that area and i went to uh, west west papua an island off the west coast of west papua and i asked about their traditional means of making fire the chaps there showed me the hand drill uh, which was great i photographed that mm-hmm. and then i asked them if there was anything else uh, that, that that they knew of and they then they then said about this technique and and i i couldn't believe it that the still people that that remembered it and um alfred it turned out that alfred russell wallace had stayed in the very village in the 1860s that that i was staying at and um and they they got a piece of bamboo this one chap called moses got a piece of bamboo he got a piece of broken porcelain he got some of this palm scurf from a, a cariota palm and and he made he made an ember in front of me and it was just it was just incredible uh and then I, i've since seen that in uh in the philippines in in the island of palawan which spans between the philippines uh most of the philippines and the, the island of borneo so that it's like a land bridge almost mm. um so they use it in some of the jungle the northern jungles there the batak people incredible and so there were yeah the, i think that was the 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 most unexpected thing because i just never never read about it until i started doing research hmm. amazing no it is amazing it is amazing yeah yeah and thank you for for sharing that in your book were there any other situations where you were surprised by what you found because clearly you went out expecting or looking for or at least hoping to find the the fire piston guy you were hoping to find people who were using fire plow and and the fire saw and the fire thong but was was there anything else that surprised you or or took you kind of from left field as you as you made your travels i think it was um i i think it was just just going back to what we mentioned earlier about the the prevalence of some of these skills today that, Mm. that remain i think so nothing really 
specifically, apart from the, the bamboo strike light, but I think just generally how how common these traditional ma- ways of making fire still are. I think so overall, I think that that was really surprising and heartening. Mm, mm. Uh, um, but, you know, you've got other things like people, the other surprise, uh, maybe not in a way surprising, um, people... People still using, people still carrying fire. You know, they'll light the fire in their in their house in the morning. They'll cook some rice or they'll, they'll cook some pork or something, and then they'll extinguish their fire. So they'll pull the pull the logs away so the fire goes out. But before they do that, they'll light um, a material, uh, and in many places they use different materials. But they'll light a material, whether it be uh, punky wood or uh, a rope made from coconut fibers. They'll, they'll catch the the ember on on that material and then they'll go they'll let their main fire go out at home and then they'll embark on a uh, a food gathering trip whether they're attending to their gardens where they're growing vegetables miles away in the jungle or whether they're going hunting um, they'll carry these things and on the way they'll they'll use it to light a cigarette or light a little fire if they want to have a rest or something Mm-hmm. Um, and and they'll light a fire when they get to where they're going, they'll, and then they'll cook something on there, and and then they'll put this this material out as soon as they can. They they save this material uh, religiously, you know, and and when they want to leave again, they light it up, and then they head back home and relight their home fire. So it's things like that that I didn't anticipate, I guess, mm. that I'm surprised by, mm. or it, it was really interesting. It was things that came out of my my endeavours, you know, my my adventures there. Yeah. Think other things that unforeseeable almost. Yeah. I knew that existed um, in the past, but I, you know, I didn't I didn't have it in mind really. Yeah, well, I I enjoyed reading that section about the the plaited uh, coconut husk. I think wasn't it that yeah. was made into a it's like a sort of finger thickness, like a slow fuse yeah. almost. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that that guy actually incidentally he said when uh, he'd been to prison a few times and uh, he said he used, to, he, used to, he used to smuggle a length of that in somehow and uh, so because lighters and matches weren't allowed so he'd somehow he'd, he'd smuggle it in or get someone to light it out the window or something and, and uh, keep it under the under the floor the floorboards or hidden somewhere in the cell and so he, he could smoke smoke cigarettes yeah right. that's, that's what I kind of gleaned from, from that conversation yeah which is quite quite funny yeah 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 so the uh the the inventiveness of necessity yeah yeah it's uh it's interesting yeah, yeah. Mm. so dan one of the, one of the other things that i think it kind of comes out from your story but one of the things i get asked a lot about um you know people send me questions and you you might have the same as well is people asking you know how do i become a, a bushcraft instructor or how do i work in uh in a field related to or directly involved with 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 bushcraft and i think you're you're a a very strong example of one way of doing that which initially to me is just focus on your own skills i think i mean for me as well i didn't set out um I set out being interested in the skill set and I set out wanting to learn and then it, it morphed into it being my career as it were. Yeah. What advice, if, if any, would you have for people of any age really looking to become 
more involved um, and who aspire to, you know, particularly young people who look at you or look at me and say, okay, I want to do what you guys do as, as amorphous as that might be, as varied as that might be, what, what advice would you have for them? Yes. Well, yeah, that's very kind of you to say. Um, yeah. I mean, I've been, I've been very, <clears throat> very fortunate with the opportunities I've been, been given, but at the same time, I would say that I've, you know, I've, I've, search them out myself I've, I've kind of made those opportunities mm-hmm. um i've never really had anything handed although it might appear appear to be i've never had anything handed on a plate to me i started out uh you know just a, a boy in suffolk you know just a, a normal guy um and uh you know i pro- progressed to to you know working for a bushcraft company and, and climbing the ladder there um so i i think I mean, the, the main the main thing is, I think, is to is to just do what you enjoy. And I think if if you follow that, if you follow that, then it works out. And I know that sounds um, a little bit vague, but it's it's really it's really truthful. Uh, if you follow your heart, it it works out. And if you if it's really in your blood, you you can you will do it. You will achieve it. You will find what you're looking for um to begin with don't don't worry about about money and I, again i know that sounds difficult but i think that's that's something i've gleaned from it don't, don't worry don't pick pennies don't worry about it just you know if you can volunteer for something to to because it's your passion then do it you know don't ask questions so just just do it just do what you enjoy and and those things come to you, those opportunities. When you walk through one door, there are, there are several other doors ahead of you that, that you can open and have a look, you know, and sometimes they don't work and you go back and you look through another one. But the main thing is if, if you, I, I almost, I, I don't mean this to sound brutal, but I, I almost think if you, if you need um, motivational talk, then your heart's not fully in it. Motivational talk can help but you it, it can certainly help but you, you 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 don't require it it's not essential because even without it you can you can find the right path and you can you can achieve those things so it, it it's not an effort if, if it's in your heart it's it's not an effort you just follow what what you what you love doing um but what what i will say is that that there is no there's no shortcut to to these things these things take i mean what the things that that we teach in this industry if you're doing a really good job of it you're you're learning almost you're almost learning life again because you're you're teaching things that some things the majority of things perhaps that native people use and of course we didn't we didn't grow up in the forest living in 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 the natural world all of the time with those skills we grew up in a slightly different way and we've we've come into that so from the beginning we're we're at a slight disadvantage so we've got a lot of lot of ground to cover to become competent so that you've got to work really hard to acquire that that level of knowledge you know you you can you can almost you know I, I i don't know specifics but you know let's say my age at the age of 30 you can almost perhaps become you maybe you're the equivalent of a 
a 15 year old who grew up in that environment you know so you you've got to work really hard to acquire those things you've got to go out and and try everything you've got to read things in the most reliable sources which can be difficult nowadays there's it's very difficult to sort the wheat from the chaff <laughs> so you've got to find the right the right uh, guidance uh, but that's that's only part of it. The guidance is only a little bit of it. That can that can kick you off. That lights the touch paper. But then it's up to you. You've got to pursue those things. And and even if you re- read bad information, we'll prove it wrong. You know, find out for yourself. Experiment. Try. Do what you love, and and you become successful. You things work out. Yep. Good advice. Good advice. I mean, there's a few. There's a few words you use there. One is competence, and I think that's that's a good word because if you, you know, for a young person, if if you turn up volunteering at a scout group or a bushcraft school or, or or whatever it is, the opportunity that you can find, if you're if you have some competence, then you're right. It opens other doors. People go, oh, this this person they're they're committed it shows that you're committed um it shows that you're you have the ability to acquire skills it shows that you have some competence already and and as you said it it then opens other doors and that that's how life in general works i mean that's not specific to our line of work i mean it's 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 what happens You, you know you turn up somewhere and you're uh you're doing a saturday job in a in a shop or you're waiting tables or you're doing dishes or, or whatever it wherever you start or you're the you know the office runaround or, or what have you and then when you prove yourself to be competent at what you're being asked to do then other opportunities open up to you that's right yeah you have to sure. you, know, you sort of get in at the bottom and have some commitment to what it is that you're doing and do do those things that you're asked to do with good grace and enthusiasm and it opens up other opportunities absolutely Yes, that's yeah, right. Yeah. I think Muhammad Ali once said, to do well in life, you've got to have will and you have to have skill, but the will must be stronger than the skill. <laughs> and I, I think that, that's something I often look back to. Yeah, no, that's good advice, particularly, and, and you know, particularly striking coming from somebody as skillful as Muhammad Ali was. So, uh, yeah. Because he wasn't yeah. without skill. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So Dan, you've you've had this journey so far. You've written your book. You're still <clears> clearly in the process of, of of letting the world know about that book and promoting the book. And yes. you know you have to do with you with your work. And um, I hope people listen to this who don't already have the book. I hope they um, I hope they go out and buy a copy because it's it is a great book. Um, what's next? What's next? Well, I'm I'm setting up my own business uh, now. Now, so um, I'm in the process. I've already got some expeditions uh, available for booking. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I want to branch out and 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 run some really exciting expeditions in in different parts of the world. And I'd like to concentrate on the really really remote areas as much as possible and 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 give people good experiences in those places teach them the skills of of how to live there um and and also you know bring history into it and 
uh, give them a well-rounded experience of, of the place. But I'm really passionate about about travel, and I've done a lot in Britain now. Uh, run a lot of courses there, yeah. and which I'm still very passionate about. I love I love Britain. Um, it's my home. Um, but I'm I'm very keen on branching out and and doing some really really adventurous trips uh, to places that are less visited um and of course as ethically as possible uh but just just going out and, and doing something doing something different really um uh writing writing's on on the uh on the agenda as well i'd i'd love to i'd love to do another book um and it's it's just i don't want to write for the sake for the sake of it and the same as with this book fire the art of fire I didn't want to write for the sake of it. I wanted, uh, so I'm really kind of digging deep to think about what's what's meaningful, what might, you know, uh, affect the world in a really positive way, as it is currently, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and 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 put my, you know, put, just follow my passion, put my passion down on paper, and do something that's that's worthwhile. So that's yeah, that's that's the agenda at the moment. But just yeah, just trying to enjoy myself and uh, and uh, and share share my passion with others as mm-hmm. I've always tried to do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sounds sounds good. And uh, you've got a, a trip in Papua. I noticed that you'd been um, showing some images, promoting on your Instagram. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So we're, we're we're running a trip. It's in September 2019, mm-hmm. and we're going to go out. I've made some really fantastic relationships with the the, the people out there. Um, so we're we're going to fly to Port Moresby, the capital of Papua New Guinea, and then from there we're going to head up to uh, the town of Rabaul, which is in uh, East New Britain, which is one of the islands off the northeast coast. And from there, it's really kind of rarely visited. And uh, for, that's that's where the where I went to write the fireplace chapter in my book. So we're going to go there. Uh, there's lots of World War Two history there. Some of the fiercest fighting in the Pacific arena uh, in that area. We're going to go there, explore some of that. There's some incredible snorkeling, some great fishing. Um, there's huge volcanoes all around the town, um, which we can explore. There's there's the coastal tribes that live there, the, the Tolai people are most notable. They live um, on the coast and they've got a fascinating culture. They still trade with shells. So their, their money is, sh- they use modern money now, the Kina, but they they're, they still use today shells to trade. In, mm. They can buy a bag of crisps in the store um, and they use it for traditional, traditional exchanges as well. Um, so we've got those people. We're going to stay with those for a few days and uh, learn about their their way of life. And then we're going to push further into the jungle. There's beautiful primary rainforest, uh, amazing wildlife. Um, and you, there's another tribe called the Bining who who do these these fire dances, the Bining fire dance. So we're going to push in into the jungle there and experience some of their culture. I'm going to um, they're going to do a, a fire dance for us. And then teach us some of our, some of their their traditions, and um, we're going to camp out in the jungle for the whole time. But when we're with them, learning about how they, how they find food in the forest, how they hunt, how they trap, how they make their costumes for their dances. They make those from bark cloth, so they take tree bark and they beat it mm-hmm. until it's 
uh, becomes a cloth. And um, so lots of different things. We were cooking rock ovens, um, big feasts of pork and bananas and, and all sorts of things. But the, the thing with, with that area is that there's a degree of unknown. So you, you can only plan for so much. And those things I've, I've arranged already. But there are lots of things that could happen while we're there that, that are unique and, and uh, un- unplanned, you know, but could be equally as, as exciting. So... Um, so yeah, that's that's the trip, and I'm running a, a trip in Africa as well in in Namibia. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, a couple of things, a couple of things on the agenda, and um, and of course I'm doing. I love Britain, and I want to impart some knowledge in in that area. So I'm running some day long courses there on fire lighting, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and wood carving. So mm, so yeah, just just starting at the moment, but there are, there are a few things up um, available and. Uh, very exciting mm. really where, exciting and where can people find you online dan what's the main home yeah so um my website is danhume.com and i'm on instagram my instagram is danhume uk mm-hmm. uh so i post i post a lot of my photos on there um and uh and all my courses are and a, a bit about me is on, on my website Mm-hmm. so people can check that out yeah people can say hi to you on instagram as well if they want to yeah. for sure yeah yeah if i get a message i get lots of messages all the time from people asking questions and um just about about skills or about my experiences and about the book mm-hmm. um just feel free to message me on there because yeah I'll, I'll respond as soon as i can and uh no it's great it's great when people message so yeah it is it's good to know that it's good to know that people are interested in what you're doing isn't it it's uh i think sometimes people the reception and it is it's great no yeah i think sometimes people are a little afraid of like oh you're busy i don't want to bother you and actually no it's yeah you'd be you'd be surprised at how few people do contact you about things sometimes and you know you you putting you know you've written a book and i've written you know i've written my blog for years and you know you put out videos and pod you know these podcasts etc and it, it's nice to know that somebody's engaging with them and you get something back um you know even if it's questions to answer it's like okay well actually there is somebody out there it's not just tumbleweeds it's uh, it's nice that people sure. are engaged well, yeah 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 the more the better in yes. my opinion <laughs> sure indeed <laughs> indeed good yeah. So you, you're splitting your time between the UK and the Philippines. Is that how you're doing things at the moment, Dan? Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah, my, my, I live here for, you know, several months of the year. Mm-hmm. And it's a really good base because I'm, I'm setting up my business and um, I'm really passionate about the jungle. And it's it's uh, not only does my, my girlfriend live here, but, um, you know, secondary to that, it's it's a great base. I'm, you know, I'm I'm about six hours north of manila mm-hmm. so um manila is a great hub to get to the rest of southeast asia and new guinea and um and lots of other areas so it's it's a great place to be but it's really nice yeah i've got my hammock strung up underneath the, the mango tree <laughs> i do a lot of my work from there a lot of uh, setting up uh, different things and uh, my you know my office is 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 the hammock under the mango tree and and so it's it's a great way to work sounds and terrible, then from there, sounds terrible then. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then from there of course if i need to you know of course i need to meet people face to face then uh then i'll i'll travel i'll travel which is what i'm doing in a couple of days mm-hmm. going back to indonesia and 
off to Sumatra to set something else up. Okay, so. cool. So all go sounds good. Sounds all very interesting. So I wish you, wish you all the best of luck with that. And of course, we'll keep in touch. We'll keep in touch. And uh, yeah, the talk today no. it's been it's been great to to discuss the book and um, and some of the other things. And uh, no, it's great. It's yep. great. I hope people enjoy. Yes, I'm sure they will. And if if you're listening to this and you don't own Dan's book, The Art of Fire, The Joy of Tinder, Spark, and Ember, please go out and buy it as soon as possible because it's definitely one that you should have in your library in my opinion so do that that's your call Thank to you. action and if yeah. people i might just add if people would like a signed copy uh or a you know a, um, a message written in there again just message me on instagram or email me at the email on, on my website and um i'll get right back to you I'll, I'll you know i'll write write a message in there sign it and get it in the post to you wonderful that's very good of you dan yeah that's very good superb well thank you very much for your time dan i really appreciate it good to catch up um despite our slight connectivity issues before this and uh it all worked out well in the end and uh, yeah <laughs> really nice to catch up with you dan thank you very much i really appreciate it thank you very much for take no, care no worries well thanks again to dan for his time Check out the page on my blog associated with this podcast. That's paulkirtley.co.uk forward slash podcast 37, podcast 37. There you'll find links to Dan's website, Dan's Instagram, and a number of other useful links related to our discussion. And if you're not already subscribed to this podcast on your favorite podcast app, remember to hit the subscribe button now so you don't miss out any of the forthcoming episodes. Thanks for listening. And I look forward to speaking to you on the next episode of Paul Kirtley Podcast, where my guest will be Justin Barber, a.k.a. the Newfoundland Explorer. That will be a good episode as well. So don't forget to subscribe. And I look forward to speaking to you on the next episode of the Paul Cutley podcast. Until then, take care and enjoy the outdoors. Mm-hmm.